Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, head back to your seats. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Good to see you. Uh, You'll have to bear with me. It's uh, allergy season officially started this week. Oh, Lord. I have this gorgeous uh, oak tree in in my back, in my backyard, but it's like I walked out two days ago, and it's all those little pods just everywhere. So um, in the grand experiment to find out which of the drugs that are available on the market will not completely shut me down mentally and emotionally. So it's an experiment. I don't know. Maybe I'll hallucinate in the middle of this message, which probably make it more interesting than what I wrote, honestly. Um, so we're in a series uh, called The Human God. And what we like to do at the beginning of every year is allow one of the Gospels to recenter us on Jesus, um, that wherever we're headed this year and, um, you know, the way that we do vision in our community, it's like we feel like the Lord speaks something to us, but the, the year itself is the process of discovery to not necessarily know what comes next. Um, but when we center on um, the story of Jesus to, re- to remind ourselves of who he is um, and what he's about, it begins to to you know, kind of give us that sense of trajectory of where it is that we uh, are headed and where, what comes next. And I like that uh, even last week when Jonathan was preaching, he said, you know, we're in the middle of what happens next. And one of the things that we've recognized about the Gospel of Mark is it's so uh, dense. Um, I, I gave the, the rather disparaging analogy at the beginning of this uh, series that it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings, but the theatrical release version and then they released the extended edition on the double DVD, and you're like, why would I go back to the theatrical version? Like, it's, this is way better. It's three hours and 45 minutes of Tolkien. Are you kidding me? Here's my new analogy. I think Mark is filet mignon. Ah, right? It's only eight ounces, but it, there's no fat on it, right? Like, it is delicious. And you're not going to grind it up and make a burger out of it. Like, that's not what Mark is for. That's what Matthew is for. You make a shepherd's pie out of Luke. But if you want filet mignon, you go with Mark. Um, so that's, that's where we're at. And um, today we're going to be looking at uh, a couple portions of Mark chapter 8. So let me pray and we'll get right into this. So Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you're here, that you are with us, um, that you are for us, that you are a God who turns curses into blessings. Lord, I pray that every time we come together in this place, um, that we would maintain that open-handed expectancy that we will meet you here um, and that you will transform us. Um, Whether it's reinforcing uh, parts of who we are or how we see the world that really do align with your kingdom, um, or if it's challenging us to let go of some more uh, empirical notions that we've taken upon ourselves that cloud our ability to see clearly uh, who you are uh, when you are on the throne. Um, So Father, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us in this. Speak to each one of us whatever we need to hear today uh, to be able uh, to reassert our allegiance to you. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts 
be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is kind of my thesis for today. This is what I want to hang everything that we're going to be talking about this morning, that the human God resists and overcomes the power-hungry structures of the world, calling us to full allegiance to him. And so one of the things that we've seen is another major theme of Mark. It's the confrontation of the kingdom of Jesus and the empires of the world or the, uh, the, the forces of evil, um, sometimes referred to in Scripture as the powers and principalities. And because um, Mark's version of Jesus doesn't talk a lot, we see through his actions this confrontation. He's constantly going up against uh, the human-made structures that we might consider the powers and principalities, whether that's a kind of a status quo religious elite system that worked for some and, and held everybody else kind of at bay from God, or if it's the political uh, structures of the day manifested through King Herod or Caesar himself in the Roman Empire. And that what Jesus is doing as he's moving through the world is he's kind of pushing up against these systems. And what we see kind of especially in the earlier bits, is that Jesus was performing miracles. He's uh, delivering people from evil spirits. He's confronting uh, the, the religious elite, challenging them what they're saying. But he was constantly telling people, like, don't tell anyone who I am. Like, don't let this get out. Because Jesus knows there's a kind of a timeline as we're steadily marching towards Jerusalem for the final confrontation between the kingdom and the empire. And that's where we're entering into this story here. Matthew 8 and 9 is really this pivot. Like if you think it's already been breezing past us, this is where the story begins to gather a sense of intensity. So last week, um, Jonathan spoke to us about the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and kind of watching how Jesus is maneuvering a very difficult moment in his own life uh, to still choose to be compassionate, but working through his disciples. And the challenge to all of us in that is, are we um, keeping our focus enough on Jesus that we spend intentional time with God so that when the people around us that are hurting cry out for help, that God uh, has granted us the ability to care for them? Are we kind of protecting our margins so when um, the people that we love are in pain or in need, we actually have something to offer? And so in, Matthew, or in Mark 8, you see how you said I'm preaching on Matthew because that's my favorite gospel. But again, filet mignon, here we go. Um, so what happens in Mark 8 is there's another story of another feeding, but this one's only 4,000 people, um, and there's only seven baskets left over. And it feels very odd. It's not a very good storytelling technique to be like, one time there's 5,000 people and Jesus fed them with just like you know, five loaves and two fish, and then there was 12 baskets left over. And then this other time, well, there were, only, there were a thousand less people, and there were five less baskets. And you're just like... This seems like, why are we telling this story? Um, but one of the interesting possibilities is when we follow where Jesus is walking. So he's spending a lot of his time kind of like hovering around Capernaum, like northern Judea, Galilee area, um, that he's perhaps kind of entering into um, some Gentile areas, or at least they were kind of mixed areas. There were some Jews and some Gentiles. And so seven might be a symbol for what, in, in the time in Israel, they, would, they believed there were 70 Gentile nations. So maybe Mark telling us the first one was him feeding, um, feeding the Israelites, essentially. So you have 12 baskets, like the 12 nations. And the second one was seven baskets, saying Jesus also came to feed the Gentiles. Raise your hand if you're a Gentile. That should be everybody. 
not Lillian. Oh, no, Lillian, you figured it out. You were like, yes, I am. I'm there. That's me. Um, So the story starts to take up a new urgency from this point. We're going to be jumping in at Mark 8, uh, beginning in the 11th verse. This is Mark 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven, which, again, is a crazy thing to ask when he just fed what are we, 9,000 well, 9, men? Because remember, the Bible has this like, delightful little bias. It just says like, there's 5,000 men and probably some women and children. You know? So we're talking about like thousands of people have just been fed. And they come and they're like, give us a sign from heaven. And you're like, seriously? What is this? You know? um, so he sighed deeply. Again, so fun. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And I like that because it's almost like Jesus is saying, like, I'm not here just to perform for you. And I'm not here to, like, prove myself to you. And I think sometimes that's the temptation that we have. It's like we keep making Jesus try to prove himself to us. Like, if you do this, then maybe I'll believe. But then we just, like, push the goalposts a little bit more. We're like, well, if you did this for me, Jesus, and if you did that, you know, and it's like we're constantly trying to get him to prove himself for us. Um, So then he left them. He got back into the boat. And he crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Again, they're not exactly the brightest crayons in the box. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? My Jesus is a little sassy, so maybe yours isn't as sassy as mine is. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So if you know the Old Testament, you know that Israelites have an interesting relationship with yeast. Um, That when they were delivered from Egypt uh, through Moses and uh, that kind of miraculous encounter there, um, they had to move so quickly that they weren't able to gather up everything that they needed for the journey. And so in the Jewish tradition, they would celebrate that Passover, um, that deliverance from Egypt with unleavened bread. That's bread without any yeast, flatbread, pitas, essentially. And so that's a very integral part of what kind of marked them out from the other tribes in the area, that they, they worshipped, like this unleavened bread was a symbol of God's deliverance. So what they would do for those ceremonies is to kind of clean out the house. You would clean out all yeast as sort of a symbol of evil or a symbol of contamination. And that was part of this ritualistic cleansing of the house to declare it clean uh, for God to once more uh, deliver us. They're kind of reenacting that story. So Jesus is saying, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. He's saying, beware of something that could contaminate the pure thing or the good thing that God is doing in you. So what does it mean to be the yeast of the Pharisees or the yeast of Herod? 
So the Pharisees were an interesting group. There were essentially four Judaisms in the first century. Uh, the Pharisees are kind of um, the religious conservatives of the day in that their definition and, and how we live out Torah, how we live out the law, is very conservative and precise. Uh, there's a huge moral code that the Pharisees championed. Um, the Sadducees were kind of the religious liberals of the day in that they would have a liberal interpretation of Torah um, in not really getting into the letter of the law but trying to get more to the spirit. Um, you had um, the Essenes who were, um, they kind of, let's say they're the libertarians of the day. Um, that they were pulling away from society and saying we have to kind of preserve this thing kind of outside of the city gates and live uh, a simple and pious life. Um, and then you had the zealots who were the political radicals um, of the day that believed in this kingdom, but it was going to come through violent revolution. So essentially four kinds of Judaism. Pharisees were kind of the dominant um, class of the day. And they can sort of t uh, like take their heritage all the way back to Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple. And the Pharisees wanted to see God's kingdom come. Um, like all Jews, they, they had this expectation God's Messiah was going to come. But the outcome that they anticipated was a kingdom of strict moralism that would assert their religiosity over everybody. So there, it's a high moral code, a strict moral code that they held themselves to. And they're like, if we can impose... It's a ghost. If we can impose our strict moral structure on everybody else, then the kingdom will come. Now, already, does that maybe just possibly have anything to do with America in the 21st century? Like, if we can impose our morality on everybody through the law, then maybe the kingdom of God will come. Okay? And people think that this, this book is irrelevant. Now, what about Herod? Herod was a puppet king established by the Roman Empire. He was a very good soldier for the empire, and so they repaid him by putting him on the throne um, in Judea. But a lot of people were very suspicious of him. They said, he's not the true king. He's not really of the line of David. He doesn't deserve it. So Herod was looking for um, a kingdom, uh, a system of governance that would reinforce his family's claim to the throne. And so they wanted a kingdom that would prop up their own stronghold on power. Now, again, I don't know. Does that apply in any way, shape, or form to the 21st century? That sometimes we have political leaders who like systems that prop up their sense of power and their sense of entitlement to control people. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like that ever before, okay? And again, this is what it's so funny to me when people say that we need to keep politics out of the Bible, like that this isn't a political book. This is intensely political. It's not partisan in the way that we normally read it because we read through our political lenses, but it is profoundly political. And so what Jesus is saying when he says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, he's saying God is doing this new thing in the advancement of the kingdom. Again, that is political language. Kingdom is political language. But he's saying watch out for allowing those contaminants from a Pharisaic perspective of attempting to impose a moral system on people in order to control them or to take up 
the language of God in order to prop up your own sense of power. Those are the kinds of yeast that he's warning them to. And we see this even in verse 18, where Jesus is actually kind of quoting from uh, the prophet Jeremiah. And he says, you have eyes, but you don't see, and you have ears, but you don't hear. Because in Jeremiah's time, this is exactly what happened. The people began to turn from seeing Yahweh as their true king and looking to other people, other political systems and religious systems that would kind of maintain their own sense of comfort that was out for their concerns and not taking care of, of the people that needed it most, and they were missing out on what justice meant, justice that was shaped by worship of Yahweh. And so what happens in the time of Jeremiah is the people are disobedient, and then the, the empires rush in and absolutely smash Israel. They find themselves in exile shortly thereafter. So what is it that Mark is actually telling us here, talking about this yeast of Pharisees and of Herod? He's saying that we must resist the temptation to use Jesus to prop up our political or our personal aspirations. And I love this quote from Tony Campolo, who's a professor at Eastern University. He says, mixing religion and politics is like mixing ice cream and manure. It doesn't do much to the manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. And I like it because it's funny and it's offensive. And if there's two things you know about me, it's that I'm funny and I'm offensive. <laughs> Self-proclaimed. No, actually, I, I did a poll of all my exes, and those are the two things that mostly come up. He's very funny and he's very offensive. But I can blame it on my culture of origin, which most of you can't. So um, what I like about that, it's like, Campolo is essentially saying what Jesus did, uh, just in a more crude way. Like, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Um, and it's a gross over oversimplification. Of course, what do we mean when we say politics? What do we mean when we say religion, et cetera, et cetera? But I'm going to make a, uh, my own gross oversimplification here. I believe um, that conservative Christians want a king without a kingdom. Okay? That conservative Christians tend to want Jesus as Lord, but none of the actual effects of what that does for people. Most poignantly, the least of these. Jesus' category, the least of these. The poor, the oppressed, uh, the overlooked. And I think progressive Christians tend to want a kingdom without a king. They want all the benefits of that thing. They want justice, but the, the bit about worship, like who Jesus actually is, makes them a little bit uncomfortable. And what happens, and this is again what we see in the fracturing of our country where politics and religion have mixed, is that each side finds themselves in what's called a moral matrix where they see we've got it right, we have a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what we're called to do and what we're called to be, and they can't see their own blind spots and that they demonize the other side as being immoral or evil. Now I want to, this is the next part is very heady. So um, some of you all might just want to like switch over to, to TikTok for the next five to ten minutes. Uh, but I find this actually fascinating and really helpful. So this is, uh, there's, a, there's an idea called moral foundations theory that Jonathan Haidt and some other social psychologists developed kind of around 2004. And what they were looking at is what are the, what are the underlying values that people have that might be predictors of their political um, orientation? And so instead of looking at ideas like what's your opinion on 
trans issues or immigration or whatever it might be, not the actual issue, but what are the underlying foundations to your uh, moral posture to the world that might begin to predict how you would play out. And they, so what they essentially did is they came up with these sort of five um, core categories, uh, these moral foundations, um, and began to chart how, how much people uh, would resonate with those things as being kind of central to their moral values. Um, and so there's a, there's, you can see the kind of the five of them here kind of starting from the top and working down. The first one is care and harm, okay? Um, that's a very high moral value. And you can see, because there's not too much deviation from very liberal to very conservative, that's by and large uh, an issue that most everybody has in common, that liberals are a little bit more attuned to care and harm, uh, but for the most part, uh, we all value that. There's another one, the next one's called fairness or cheating. Um, again, for the most part, liberals have a slightly higher view of that, um, conservatives a little bit less so, but there's not a whole lot of difference. Um, and then the next three are actually rather interesting. We have loyalty and betrayal, or here it says in-group. So how much do we have our, like our tribe, our group, like this, this is us kind of thing. So that's a, the paradigm of loyalty and betrayal. Um, the next one is authority and subversion, okay? So um, the yellow one, like how much do you respect and value authority, or hierarchies in particular. So you can see that's a rather low value for liberals, and then it steadily becomes higher the more conservative that you become. Um, and then the, this last one is rather interesting. Uh, it's purity. You could also say sanctity. Um, and this is interesting because it's a moral category of disgust. Um, how, how much do we value the idea of something being sacred or holy that it can be degraded? And so for people who are very liberal, they tend to have a very low value when it comes to ideas of purity, sanctity, and so on. And then it's a very high value for very conservative people. Now, they did this experiment like all over the world, lots of different cultures, and they found that time and again, um, this chart for the most part plays out that these are kind of how those values are parsed. Now, the, the interesting thing here to me is that it challenges some of that moral matrix that oftentimes we have. That we say, my team is moral and the other team is immoral. In reality, what the research shows is that it's not about who is moral and who is not moral, it's a question of what is your moral orientation? What are your primary values that you would hold um, with your orientation? Um, and I think this is incredibly important for us to understand uh, in this era where politics is the new religion, right? And I don't think that's any surprise. Like, because the kind of core uh, narrative in our culture, the core story that holds all of us together has rotted out of the center, we run to other um, ideologies that can fill the gap that religion traditionally does. And so what do you find in religion? You find... Uh, there are leaders, there are temples, there is particular language that's used, there are symbols, there are rituals. All the trappings of a standard religion are, we now apply into our politics. And that's what kind of traps us. We, we, we worship our political alliance. Now what they've also found, the, the work of Jonathan Haidt, some of the things that he's done later in social psychology, is that the farther that you get out into the extremes 
um, you actually find more similarity in their methodology. Not necessarily their moral orientation, but the way in which they, they try to go about um, seeing their vision, moral vision for the world imposed on others. Um, the first thing that you see, there's again 7% of the extremes, like very, very left and very, very right. Did I get that right for you guys? Yeah, left, right. Um, oh yeah, because it's up there, duh. So if you go way, all the 7% people way over there and the 7% people way over there, they're actually method, method, methodologically identical. Number one, you purge anybody in your own tribe who isn't a true believer. So if you don't maintain all our planks and have all of our vision, then you don't get to be part of the tribe. You don't get to be part of the conversation. Um, and that's what turns us from partisanship, which can actually be a relatively healthy thing, um, that we're discussing different ideas. And again, the psychology of liberals and conservatives is generally liberals are open and creative and forward thinking, and they're the entrepreneurs. Um, and we need entrepreneurs, and conservatives are the ones that are kind of critical and thinking about how do we manage, how do we hold back, how do we keep ourselves safe. Um, so conservatives make terrible entrepreneurs, but they're really good administrators. Liberals make great entrepreneurs, and they're terrible administrators. And you know this in your life because of how clean your room is. <laughs> if you are a conservative, it has been statistically proven that you keep a cleaner house because you, order is a high value that you have. And liberals, I love you, but your, your house is a mess, okay? Um, but those, the, there's a normal kind of partisanship there that's really sweet. But what happens at these 7% of extremes is, number one, you have to purge anybody who does not have this sense of purity. Again, that's where you see that value starting to be skewed. Um, and it becomes an imposition of moral tyranny. So whether on the far left or the far right, there's a sense of moral tyranny, which is that Pharisaic notion. This is why I think the Pharisaic thing, it's not actually a conservative mentality, it's an extremist mentality. If I can impose my moral vision on other people, then I've, I've made the kingdom come. Um, now what you do see because of that authority paradigm, it tends to be that conservatives have a harder time critiquing um, people in authority, that they will make excuses um, for their leaders time and again. Stop me if you've heard this one before. And that uh, liberals tend to be more happy with complaining about their guy. Um, but when you, the farther out into those extremes that you get, the more you see these things playing out. That's why in the 20th century, the two major autocratic um, structures that we saw when Hitler's Nazi Germany and Stalin's communist Russia, that Nazism and communism technically are diametrically opposed political theories. But what happens is called the, the horseshoe theory of politics, where the more out to the extremes they get, the more similar they become. And so the methodology that they use is actually the same thing. And so you see extreme left and extreme right an attempt to impose a moral vision on people uh, rather than working together, where compromise is now a dirty word. Are you still with me? Okay, does this make sense? All right, this is boring but really important. Now, what happens when we bring that into the faith? Because I've said before, I, I have this sneaking suspicion that a lot of times whatever the word is that we put before Christian is actually a true orientation to the world and that we use Christian to validate the other thing. So when we talk about being a conservative Christian or a progressive Christian, what we really mean is we're a Christian conservative. Like we're a conservative and we just use Jesus to justify being a conservative or we're a liberal and we just kind of use Jesus to justify being a liberal. And I think, again, that's the Pharisaic thing. Um, what happens so often with 
as again, the farther out to the extremes is that conservative and liberal Christians first look to government to do kingdom things. Um, and that, that, again, the value, like how that plays out in the actual issues is different, but the expectation is the same. I think conservative Christians are more likely, again, because of authority, to talk about us being a Christian nation and to talk about how, you know, we are, uh, like, they're going to be more overt about worshiping God and, like, that we were ordained by, you know, like, again, even our governor did this a couple months ago, like, put out this, uh, this ad that was, like, on the eighth day, God created this guy to save the world. And you're like, well, that's a little much, like... Do we really want to go to the, like, the messianic complex here? Um, uh, but liberals, not sometimes, again, the kingdom without a king, won't necessarily talk about the, Jesus, but they will uh, pre-assume a lot of like, the outworkings of the kingdom through the moral code. And what happens when we mix in this yeast, the Pharisaic yeast of moral imposition, the Herodian yeast of uh, accumulating and preserving power for our tribe, is that before long we have to buy the whole package to kind of quote unquote belong. Because that's the primary value for human beings and all of this, all of our moral posturing, it's about belonging. And so we look for something practical and visual that can kind of help us to find a sense of belonging and then we belong to these political tribes, whether it's an actual political party or a movement, and they tell us, okay, but in order to be part of us, you have to be pure. And to be pure, you have to believe this, and then this, and 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 this. And if you don't agree with that one, then you're not really one of us. And so we're so afraid of not belonging that we actually abdicate the capacity for critical thinking. And so we take these little ideological phrases that are kind of thrown about in the social media ether, and we go, oh yeah, absolutely, we believe in that thing. And we've never actually looked at it as a Christian first. Um, we are usually looking at it through the lens of that political tribe that we have a sense of belonging to. I've always kind of half-jokingly said, I think if Jesus were to be president, number one, we would all vote for him, and number two, we would almost certainly crucify him before the second year was out, because that's what happened the first time, right? Like, we would not like what Jesus would do, and I've half-jokingly said, I think Jesus would be a, a, a socially conservative and fiscally liberal. Um, which we don't even have that political party. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't exist for us. Uh, you probably wouldn't. Jesus already agrees with you and, your, and how you vote, so just don't <laughs> worry. Um, but that's what happens is, like, we find more of our, our identity in a, an ideology or a, a basket of beliefs that we've been handed in order to belong to these contemporary arguments because we're afraid of being left out in the dark. And before long, we lose that capacity to think faithfully first as followers of Jesus. Now, for all y'all moderates out here, um, the thing that we fall into is that we tend to avoid the hard questions altogether um, for the sake of just making it about personal relationship. We say, well, at the end of the day, the gospel is just about my personal relationship with Jesus, um, which is a sign of tremendous privilege um, that seems like the system probably already works for you if you have the luxury to just make it about you and your boyfriend, Jesus. Um, personal relationship is incredibly important. Like having a real living relationship with Jesus, I think that is real, but it's not the whole story. And that's not everything that we're called to. It's like 
Stanley, Uncle Stanley Hauerwas, my favorite theologians, he says, um, like, it's, a, it's an incomprehensible phrase to say, Jesus is Lord, but that's just my personal opinion. Like, how does that work? And listen, if it was easy to figure out how our religion should shape our political views, we would have already figured it out by now. Because again, remember, there is no democracy in all of the Bible. Like, those wasn't questions they were being asked. They lived in an empire, with, and they lived in a Judaic puppet kingship. Like, so the questions that they were asking in the first century, you know, like, that's not necessarily where we are, although there are some of those ideals that we can continue to extrapolate and see how they were maneuvering that. There are no easy questions um, for how our religion shapes our political views. I don't think it's the extremes. I don't think that it is this, we pull away to be neither in the world nor particularly of the world. I don't think that's the thing, um, although some Christians advocate for that. And I don't think it's the other thing where we just believe if you're a Christian, you just vote Republican or you just vote Democrat or whatever it might be. It requires nuance and it requires thinking and it requires us to be formed by Jesus to really go through the issues of the day and to think as Christians first. Because that temptation always comes for us in one breath to say Jesus is Lord and in the other breath to rebuke him for how he's not following up with our political agendas, which is exactly what happens in the next part of the story. So in Mark 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. How many of you, you've gotten that rebuke from Jesus, right? You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. When he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Why was Jesus killed? It's because he challenged the powers and the principalities. He refused to be domesticated and co-opted by the Pharisees or by Herod. Remember, even at the beginning of um, the Gospel of Matthew, when it's talking about the birth of Jesus, that it's Herod saying, oh, go and find out where he is so that I can worship him too, which is like, oh, I want to bring him in to my political platform. I, help, I want him to become a puppet for me or a mascot 
Jesus was killed because he challenged the powers and the principalities. He refused to go along with the political and the religious agendas of the day that would seek to impose a moral revolution on people or was used to kind of um, contain their own sense of power. Because Mark's lens for his whole gospel is this showdown against the powers and the principalities, ultimately the Satan, the accuser, the voice of the enemy that kind of whispers in the back between all of those things. I was listening to Metallica's Master of Puppets this morning when I was driving to church, just preparing myself for worship. Um, and that's, that's how we perceive the Satan. He is the master of puppets, and the puppets are these kind of political and religious leaders who have given themselves over to ideologies for the sake of their own power. So it's this showdown against the Satan it's against the human power structures, both Jewish and Roman, both political and religious. And what we see in our sweet Mark, who is all of us, is that he gets it. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the true king. You're the one who was anointed to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. But as soon as Jesus tells him what's about to happen, he rebukes him. He says, hell no, you can't do that. Like, that's not how this is supposed to work out. And how many times do we do that? Jesus, this isn't how it's supposed to work out. That election wasn't supposed to go like that. That law wasn't supposed to be passed. And we get so angry with Jesus because he's not falling into our agendas. And we make that satanic move to accuse Jesus of not being the Messiah that we would like him to be for us. We accuse, we Satan Jesus to say, you're not being the political leader that we need. We already have a vision, Jesus. We just need you to come through and, and prop it up for us. And I think there's no coincidence then we see this really profound passage that many of you should be familiar about, denying yourself and taking up your cross. Because in following Jesus, we are to deny our own agendas and allow ourselves to be shaped by his, becoming ambassadors of his kingdom. I think when Jesus says, deny yourself, you know, that gets kind of maligned in, our, uh, in modern society. I think the contemporary church has done a terrible job with that. It just means ignore yourself and just do Jesus things, and that is not the case. What it means is deny your ego fixations, deny your political agendas. If we're reading it in context of everything that's been happening up until this verse, we see that he's saying, empty yourself of all of your agendas for your own personal empire, or for your own political empire, and come and take up your cross. Which, again, would have sounded insane to them, because they're like, take up your cross? What are you talking about? Like, that's, that's how you end up on the outside, on the outskirts of society. Like, that's the worst punishment that you can take. And he's like, yeah, take up your cross and follow me. Empty yourself of all of your agendas. And this is really scary to us, because Jesus doesn't have as good branding as a lot of our political parties do. And he doesn't have these neat, tidy little slogans that make it sound like we know what we're talking about when it comes to complex issues, but we don't. This is why if I you know, say to you, my body, my choice, you don't know what I'm talking about. Because it just fits in. The pad went away and it was like super emotional there for a moment. That's fine. Um, we use these little phrases and we're not even talking to each other because there's such a splintering. And this, this ideological loop that we're caught in that we don't know what we're actually saying because we say all of it because we want to belong. And we want to be on the right side of history. Um, 
and to be asked to empty ourselves of that stuff, to actually come behind Jesus, to, to give him our allegiance, to let go of those things that normally let us feel like we belong or give us a convenient enemy that the other people on the other side are immoral and that they're evil, it's hard because we have to trust that Jesus' way is better than our way. But when you look around, is our way of saving the world, whether it's politically or economically or ecologically, is it actually working? It's astounding how often, like, research shows, um, you know, we're so, like, our worship of political machinations is so totalitarian, but if you ask anybody if they like politics, everybody says, no, it's horrible. Like, we hate it. We hate how vitriolic it is. We hate how, like, ideologically bound and tribalistic it is. Like, nobody likes this thing the way that it's been going. So why do we keep doing it? Why don't we maybe, maybe possibly just trust Jesus' way of being in the world, of being kingdom-first people, that our our responsibility is more to be ambassadors of his kingdom, which I think actually leads to creative political engagement. It leads to nonviolent political engagement. It leads to an, a profound advocacy for the value of human life across the board because Jesus cares about life. It leads us to these solutions where, yes, we don't conveniently fit a lot of these categories. Many of you, if you know my politics, you know I'm kind of a political schizophrenic. Like, I'm still at least 27% communist. It's like here from my youth, you know? Um, but there's so much freedom in belonging to the kingdom before we belong to any of our political allegiances. And maybe we start to think a little bit more creatively about the issues of the day. I think what's so powerful here, when the final thing that Jesus is saying, is he's, he's saying, what does it profit someone to gain the whole world but to lose their soul? And what Jesus is saying to you and to me is your soul is worth more to the human God than any political agenda. Your soul is worth more to God than whatever you believe about any of these issues that you're called to believe with 100% energy 100% of the time. So imagine a strange group of misfits from all walks of life, conservatives and progressives, moderates, and communists, and capitalists, and people with different skin colors and genders. Imagine this group of misfits from all walks of life who are single-mindedly committed to Jesus, who love each other radically. I want to just allay a fear here. Some of y'all that are conservatives, you're worried that you're in the minority and that everybody else in this room is liberal. And some of y'all that are liberals worry that you're in the minority and everybody else in this room is conservative. Like, everybody's afraid of everybody, you know? But what if we were more bound in the fact that we follow Jesus than how we vote? And it's through that practice of loving one another radically, we begin to paint an alternative society. And what if that enabled us to love our neighbors wholeheartedly in a way that they've never been loved before because they're constantly being categorized, this compulsive need to fit people into boxes and voting blocks? What if we spoke truth to power? What if we spoke to the Pharisees and to Herod of our day in a way that they don't quite know what to do 
because our language is not the language that we found on social media, but our language is the language of God. I think now you're imagining the church in the first century. And the challenge is, can we make that a reality in the 21st century? So I'm going to lead us through a prayer, um, some uh, liturgical prayer that we're going to kind of begin in the spirit of confessing when we have fallen into that, where we have succumbed to yeast. And then we're going to pray prayers that are going to encourage us to live more into the kingdom um, that we did when we came into this room. So this will be up on screen. Uh, there'll be some call and response. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. We confess that we have let the yeast of the Pharisees sully our vision of your kingdom. Deliver us from a desire to impose our morality on others rather than becoming an embodiment of your love for the sake of the world. So I want you to take a moment and just confess in your heart anywhere where you find that, that Pharisaic ick. Lord, in your mercy. We confess we have allowed the yeast of Herodian power grabbing to conform your image to our political agendas. Deliver us from the desire to use your name to build our own empires. Let's confess the yeast of Herod. Lord, in your mercy. We confess that we have allowed national and political tribalism to become more a part of our identity than being your disciples. We confess we have held contempt for those who do not vote like us, who do not hold the same values as us. We repent of part partisanship that weakens our bond of your church. Teach us to hold fast to our allegiance to you over all dividing walls of hostility. Let's confess any of that contempt that we might hold. Lord, in your mercy, I want to invite you to stand for this next part. So as we confess, we're kind of emptying ourselves out, like that's what confession is. And then in declaration, we fill ourselves up. Uh, we fill ourselves with the spirit of Jesus and his kingdom ways. So this will be 
bit of call and response here. Lord Jesus, our true King, whoever wants to be your disciple, for whoever among us wants to save their life will lose it. What good is it for us to gain the whole world yet forfeit our souls? Most loving Father, whose will it is to give thanks for all things, to fear nothing but the loss of you, and to cast all our care on you who care for us. Preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties, that no clouds of this mortal life may hide from us the light of that love which is immortal, and which you have manifested to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, guide the nations of the world into the ways of justice and truth and establish among them that peace which is the fruit of righteousness that they may become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to pray for the nations, whatever nations come to mind, I want you to pray for them. God, the Father of all, whose Son commanded us to love our enemies, lead them and us from prejudice to truth. Deliver them and us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. And in your good time, enable us all to stand reconciled before you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grant, O God, that your holy and life-giving Spirit may so move every human heart that barriers which divide us may crumble, suspicions disappear, and hatred cease, that our divisions being healed, we may live in justice and peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And finally, we pray for the church. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatever else may hinder us from godly union and concord. That as there is but one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so we may be all of one heart and of one soul, united in one holy bond of truth and peace of faith and charity, and may with one mind and one mouth glorify you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.